Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business. It's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. A hundred billion people who came before us over 10,000 generations and everything that they did for us uh, to build up our world. If we were to go extinct through our own actions or lack of doing anything about it, we would be the worst of these 10,000 generations. Hello and welcome to the Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. My guest today is Toby Ord, a philosopher at Oxford University, the co-founder of the Giving What We Can movement, the co-founder of the Effective Altruism movement, and the author of the new book, The Precipice. The Precipice is a book on the cheery topic of existential risk, risks that could not just destroy some of us, but all of us, all humanity going all the way forward, all civilization going all the way forward, could wipe out potential and life on a scale that we don't even really know how to imagine. And if that doesn't sound at this exact moment like the conversation you feel like hearing, give it a chance. Because one thing that coronavirus should do is refocus us on tail risk. I mean, the past couple of decades should. The financial crisis wasn't a risk nobody could imagine. It's just one they didn't take seriously. For many people, Donald Trump getting elected was something they knew was there, possible, but they didn't take it seriously. And then, of course, a respiratory flu becoming a global pandemic. We knew about that. I mean, hell, we had a Netflix Explained episode about it last year. But certainly in our policy and public policy and even in journalism, we didn't take what we knew to be a risk seriously enough. And I think one thing that should do is focus us and get us to listen to the people who really have been thinking about the risks that could be worst for humanity and have been thinking about what it would mean to take them seriously, what it would mean to prepare for them. Ord has been studying these for years, thinking very deeply about what they mean and about the level at which they threaten us. He puts the odds of something killing off all of humanity over the next century at one in six. Now, maybe you think it's higher, maybe you think it's lower, but that's way too high. And even if it's only one in a hundred, we should be preparing for that very, very seriously in ways we're not, and we discuss why we're not. Coronavirus is horrible. It is unbelievably awful. Please do not get me wrong. And we talk about it a bit in here. But if it could have one positive legacy, then this horrifying pandemic, which most of us thankfully will survive, 
maybe could refocus us on the things that could threaten all of us in the future. And maybe, maybe it's one good thing could be that it helps us avert something that could be even worse going forward. As always, my email is EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Here is Toby Ord. Toby Ord, welcome to the podcast. Oh, it's great to be here. I want to start with the headline number you offer in the book. You think that there is a one out of six chance humanity doesn't survive the next century. That is startlingly high. How did you arrive at it? That's a good question. Uh, it's ultimately the result of thinking about these things for uh, the last uh, 15 or so years and trying to kind of put all my evidence together. Uh, but it's actually quite difficult to explain. It's not that I sat down and did some kind of uh, detailed calculation you know, with, with lots of different parts added and multiplied together. Rather, it's a Bayesian probability. It's the result of uh, you know, my reflection, somewhat similar to if someone asks you uh, some other kind of question about something that's never happened before, uh, such as, what's the chance you'll die tomorrow crossing the road? And you say, well, it's definitely less than one in a million. And you know, you can sometimes have some good ideas about these things, even if even if they've never happened uh, to you or to anyone. Ultimately, in a lot of cases, people resist the urge to use numbers in those times, and they say something like, "You know, it's it's unlikely, or it's a substantial probability, or something like that," when they can't put a scientific probability on it. Uh, but I, I felt that that would be a bit of a disservice to people reading this book, and that I should try to explain, you know, roughly the ballpark that I think that these these risks are. I want to come back to the point of if it's useful or not useful to put numbers to it. But 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 first, I want to go through the idea itself. Let's start here. How does the chance of existential catastrophe differ among the risks that nature visits upon us, a comet, an asteroid, something like that, versus the dangers that we visit upon ourselves, like nuclear war, climate change, an engineered pandemic, that kind of thing? Yeah. So there's a huge difference. Uh, there's two kinds of difference. Uh, one is that the natural risks are, I think, much lower than some of the anthropogenic risks. So we can know that, or at least we can know that the natural risks are low. Um, even, even though we've discovered many of these risks very recently and uh, are still discovering them, uh, we have this kind of comforting argument that humanity has been around for 2,000 centuries so far. And so the, the chance of us being destroyed in any particular century you know, it must be pretty low. Uh, it can't be higher than something like one in a thousand. And I, I would put it more like one in 10,000 or thereabouts. But we don't have any such comforting argument when it comes to uh, risks from advanced technology. It's only been two centuries or so since the Industrial Revolution. Uh, so if you tried the same argument, it would just say that, you know, the chance can't be, can't be too far off 50% per century, which isn't very comforting. Uh, that's one difference uh, is is the the size of the risks. I, I think that it would be very uh, bold to put uh, the risk, uh, the anthropogenic risks, such as from nuclear war, at as low as one in ten thousand per century, because that's like saying there's a ninety nine point nine nine percent chance that we get through each century. So even given all of the near misses of nuclear war and so forth, the other kind of difference is that the risks from natural causes. Uh, we can we can in more cases put some scientific uh, probabilities on them. There are cases where you know we have tracked a very large number of asteroids, and we have seen that they're not on collision courses for the Earth. And uh, the scientists can actually you know run these numbers and uh, produce more robust probabilities that are shareable between people and don't rely on as much expert judgment. 
Yeah, this is something striking about the book that on a lot of the natural risks, we can say, well, we roughly know how many supervolcanoes have erupted throughout history. Mm -hmm. We roughly know how many civilization-ending comets or asteroids have hit the Earth. But when we're asking something like the risk of uh, civilization-ending nuclear war or AI or pandemics, we're really coming up with a, a, a guesstimate ourselves. But it is striking. I mean, you have it at a thousand times likelier, at least, that human beings end humanity than that nature ends humanity, which is to say that the ultimate and primary risk to humanity is us. And I guess the technological capacity we have attained in particularly in recent centuries. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think that's right. Well, that's not great. <laughs> no. Our story of humanity over these last 2,000 centuries uh, is one of this accumulating power. You know, we've built up uh, the situation we're in now over 100 billion lives uh, that were lived before us. Uh, and this accumulation of innovations uh, that have built up uh, certainly everything that I can see around me. Um, uh, and it's, it's this extraordinary wealth of this intergenerational partnership over 10,000 generations. And as we've done it, uh, you know, our power has increased, uh, our power of the natural world. Uh, and last century, uh, this reached the point where we had the power to destroy ourselves uh, with nuclear weapons. Uh, and our power is continuing, continuing to escalate, uh, but we don't yet have the, the wisdom to ensure that we don't destroy ourselves. So before we dig into some of the risks individually, I, I want to get you to give us a tour about how they stack up. So I mentioned this one out of six probability you put existential catastrophe on over the next mm -hmm. century, but that is a breakdown of of table 6.1, which is in some ways like the core, <laughs> the core moment of the book. So you have to go through everyone, but can you just go through a quick tour of what the of what risks you count as existential? Maybe say what you mean by that, and then what probabilities you attach to them, just so we have a, a run of the landscape. Yeah, so an existential risk uh, includes risk of human extinction and other catastrophes that would be uh, similar in an important way, uh, which is that they would be the destruction of our long-term potential for the future. So this could, as well as an extinction, include something like an unrecoverable collapse of civilization. Uh, that wouldn't uh, lock us into just one world, but it would lock us into a very meager range of futures. Uh, you know, instead of having a, a vast range of trajectories uh, at our disposal, where we can kind of do anything that humanity sets its mind to within a very large uh, space. Uh, but if we collapsed civilization and could never come back, uh, then you know, this would be actually very similar uh, to extinction uh, compared to what we could have achieved. And the same would be true if there was some kind of dystopian future uh, where we were locked into some terrible set of outcomes uh, through our own institutions, perhaps. Uh, so all of those have you know, these key things in common, that they would not just destroy our, our present, but our entire future. And also that they're things that you have to avoid having happen even once in the entire future of humanity uh, if we're to, to really succeed in fulfilling our potential. Uh, so when I, when I look at these, uh, most of the, the risks that I look at are mainly of extinction or of uh, collapse type risk. Uh, so it, when it comes to natural risks, uh, I look in detail at uh, the risk of asteroids or comets 
and I put the chance of that uh, uh, being an existential catastrophe in the next hundred years at about one in a million. Uh, then, when and it comes to natural based risks, on we actually do track most of the major comets and and asteroids, and that's how likely yeah, it is that, we think that one could hit us. Although we're not that good at potentially deflecting a huge one, which worried me reading it. Yeah, that that worried me too, um, because I'd always been led to believe that we had all of this asteroid deflection technology, um, and then it was only when researching the book that I found out that that actually doesn't apply to asteroids in the categories that threaten human extinction. It's for smaller asteroids. Um, uh, and it's not clear that you could easily scale it up to the ones that do threaten us, because every time the size category gets, uh, you know, gets one larger. So instead of a one-kilometer asteroid, suppose you're dealing with a ten-kilometer asteroid, they have a thousand times as much mass. Uh, so you would need, you know, a thousand times as much energy to destroy it or dislodge it. So it's, it's very difficult. Uh, but we know that the ten-kilometer asteroids, the size that killed the dinosaurs. Uh, that in a typical century, there's only a one in one and a half million chance that it would hit us. Uh, and that we've also, uh, we're about 99% sure that we've tracked all of them. Uh, so we think that the chance of that in the next century is less than one in a hundred million. Um, and so it's probably the, the one to 10 kilometer asteroids that pose any threat at all. Um, and those are unlikely to, to destroy us. Uh, so we can be pretty confident uh, that asteroids are not going to be happening. Uh, it's less confident when it comes to these supervolcanic eruptions. Uh, these are things like uh, the Yellowstone uh, volcano. Uh, and they're very different to the normal volcanoes, which tower above the ground in a cone. These are the caldera-shaped volcanoes. Uh, and I put the, the chance of that destroying humanity's uh, future uh, in the next century at about one in 10,000. So still uh, substantially higher than that of asteroids or comets, uh, but still uh, uh, not that high. I also, I guess, I look at uh, stellar explosions such as gamma ray bursts and supernova. And while they've been discussed quite a lot, it is extremely unlikely for these events to happen close enough to the Earth uh, to, uh, to cause uh, this kind of problem. And I put that at one in a billion uh, chance in the next hundred years. It's probably just not going to happen in the Earth's history. Uh, and then I come to uh, the current set of uh, of anthropogenic risks. So the, these include nuclear war, uh, climate change, and I've got a kind of catch-all category for other forms of environmental damage and degradation. Uh, and I put each of those at about a one in a thousand chance of destroying us over the next hundred years. Whether you think that's a high or a low number uh, seems to depend upon the reader. Uh, wh what do you think? I don't know. Um, I think part of the issue here, and I think we should we should say this too for the audience, is that your definition of existential risk is quite stringent. So if we had a nuclear war that killed 80% of humanity, that would not be an existential risk as unbelievably horrifying and unimaginable as that would be. And similarly, if we had climate change uh, that ran away to 5.5 degrees and due to the effects in the environment, at the climate, in the food system, it killed off half of all people, would not be under your definition of existential risk. So we should say that we're talking here about a very limited category of like total destruction that allows for unbelievably bad things to happen and still not count. So I don't know. Um Nuclear war seems likelier from my reading to have the capacity to be an existential risk than climate change over the next hundred years. I think it'd be hard to 
not impossible, but to destroy the climate so profoundly that human life becomes literally unlivable for any, you know, kind of millions of people. I would like to think that we are not at high risk of nuclear a nuclear exchange of that level, um, and I think we are not, but it is very hard for me to imagine the world of 50 years from now. And it seems that we were at some level of risk like that less than 50 years ago between us and the Soviet Union, and it is quite easy to imagine exchanges that, while it is unclear if they would have been existential, would have at least begun to threaten at that level of destruction and nuclear winter and so on. And so... One in a thousand seems low to me, but the problem is I'm not sure how much confidence I put on my own estimates of like what kind of nuclear war would count for you as existential versus counting as simply horrible. Yeah, uh, th that's a very important uh, distinction to make. Uh, but by the time in the book where I present these numbers, uh, I've I've tried to make that extremely clear. Uh, but it, it's it's very important to say it here uh, that I am. I mean, it is a very high bar that I'm considering. Uh, and I think that I mean the nuclear war, any scale of nuclear war, uh, would be a, a terrible catastrophe. Um, and there are the full scale nuclear war would be, you know, utterly terrible. And I mean, I guess you know we, we can we can get on to that in a little bit as to why I'm particularly concerned with things that meet this threshold, uh, because it is it is an unusual thing, uh, and I don't. You know, in, in any way, want to uh, d dismiss the the destruction that could occur in any kind of uh, situation here. Well, why don't we spend a moment on that now? Because we're going to get into the risks that have mm -hmm. much more present probabilities. But before we do that, I think it would be reasonable for someone listening to think, "What the hell is wrong with these two assholes?" <laughs> <laughs> um, that they're sitting here casually talking about something that would kill fifty percent of all human life, the Thanos snap as, well, that's not an existential risk. I mean, you know, that would just bring society back into balance. And uh, to, for the for the Marvel fans out there, you're a founder of the Effective Altruism Movement. You've committed your life in a very deep way to making things as much better for as many people um, using the best evidence as possible. So you're very much not somebody who is disconnecting themselves from the moral consequences of the actions. How do you sort of manage that tension between ruling things out just because they would only kill three and a half billion people and keeping focused on the seven billion threats without beginning to numb yourself or feel like you're part of a discourse that has become so statistical that it's almost robotic. Yeah, that was actually very difficult while writing the book, uh, trying to uh, to make sure uh, that I stayed on the, the topic of the book, uh, which is these existential risks. And the, you know, it's easy to to get uh, to get stuck into all of these other possibilities. The the more uh, you know, mainstream possibilities, say from climate change and how bad it would be for so many people. Uh, but there are many other books on that topic, uh, whereas there there is much less careful discussion of the possibility that this could completely end the story of humanity. Uh, so. The reason I wanted to focus on these existential risks and to write a book about them is because of you know a number of things. Uh, the, there's one is the the sheer scale of how bad these things could be. Um, the fact that uh, that as I said, it wouldn't just destroy our present, but would destroy our entire future. 
Uh, I've been I've been reading a lot about the the long term history of humanity. You know, as I said, the the ten well the hundred billion people who came before us over ten thousand generations, and everything that they did for us uh, to build up our world. And if we were to go extinct uh, through our own actions or or uh, or lack of doing anything about it, we would be the worst of these ten thousand generations, um, and we would be this kind of dropping the baton, and failing to to pay forward all that they did for us. Uh, and also, th- that's what you get looking backwards and also looking forwards. Uh, the earth uh, looks like it will remain habitable for at least 500 million more years after us. And a typical species uh, could see at least a million of those years. And some species uh, so far, such as the horseshoe crab, have been around for 450 million years. And it seems that Humanity is a, is a pretty robust species to natural risks. We're spread in so many different ecosystems to have such a kind of a range of ways of supporting ourselves and uh, using our own intelligence to avert catastrophes that are happening. So we, if we can survive these risks of our own making and we can live long enough, a few more centuries, to develop the technological means to avoid these natural risks, there's no reason we couldn't live for you know, thousands more generations to come or maybe millions more generations to come. And so it would be this destruction of all of that. And, and this comes up when people talk about uh, nuclear war. Some people, uh, such as Jonathan Schall uh, in the 1980s, he really, he really nailed this, uh, and Derek Parfit, Carl Sagan. Uh, and it also comes up uh, when people are talking about climate change now. But the, the language about whether it could be the end of humanity is often kind of thrown out there somewhat fast and loose and not really checked. And it's a very powerful idea. Um, a lot of environmentalism is based around the idea of irrevocable changes and irrevocable losses. And that's why certain things like uh, destroying an ecosystem or losing a species would be so bad, because it's not just for our fleeting present, but over all time that we lose this thing. And that's what happens when it comes to existential risk. It's an irrevocable loss of the highest scale. And so that's why I think these things deserve some uh, careful and special attention. We're gonna. I'm gonna come back to the list of risks in a second. But can you talk just while we're on this subject about the the Derek Parfit thought experiment? Derek Parfit, of course, being the great philosopher who is one of your mentors, and he has a thought experiment here that I think helps think of helps people think about this in a clearer way. Yeah, uh, in in his uh, his great work uh, Reasons and Persons, uh, he imagined uh, three different options. Uh, the first is uh, peace. Uh, the, the world continues on fairly well. Uh, the second is a nuclear war uh, that kills 99% of all people. The third is a nuclear war that kills 100% of all people. And everyone would agree uh, that the uh, the second is, is worse than the first, and the third is worse than the second. Uh, but how much worse? Uh, is, the, is the difference between the first and the second bigger or smaller than the difference between the second and the third? Uh, and what Parfit said is that most people, if you know, if they haven't reflected upon this, would say, "Well, the difference between zero percent dying and ninety-nine percent dying is much bigger than the difference between ninety-nine percent and one hundred percent. You shouldn't be that worried about this extra small change." Uh, but he pointed out that with that one percent uh, comes the destruction of the entire future. Um, there's a kind, almost a kind of discontinuity there. It's certainly not linear. The, the damages in the amount of people killed in that case. Uh, something strange and different happens. And Jonathan Schell really captured this as well uh, in The Fate of the Earth, the book that he wrote in 1982. Uh, and 
he really they, they both really explored this idea of that we might be holding the entire future in our hands. That gets us in though to thorny territory about how do you value future or potential lives. I mean, to some degree, what you're saying there is that the difference between scenario two and scenario three is that while the numerical difference in lives lost is not so dramatic in those two scenarios, it is dramatically different when you imagine 50, 100, a million generations into the future. And so we have to give those lives some accounting. But logic like that can also have pretty unusual and for many uh, very repugnant implications about how should you think about reproduction in the present, right? Do my partner and I have a moral obligation to have as many children as possible because their lives will be you know, interesting and fascinating and they have as much right to them as we do. And so like every moment that we're not uh, creating more is a problem. What does it mean for birth control, for abortion? I'd be curious because I think this is important for this to, to hear how you think about when you say we should be valuing the future this heavily, well, just the abstract future, the future we can create. Like, how do you think about those questions? Yeah, that's, that is a real challenge to, to get right. Um, and there's a lot of debate about it, about how do you value future lives. Um, so one of the things you can care about in the future uh, is the well-being of all the people who will come to exist. Uh, that's, uh, I think, one of the most important aspects about the future. Uh, if there were two different futures you could choose, and one of them had much higher well-being for people, or one of them had you know, a world of people with very high well-being and the other one had no one at all, uh, I think this would be a really great difference between the two, uh, but it's uh, it's quite difficult to to get that right. And uh, Derek Parfit started to ask these questions about how do you compare worlds where different people come into existence, and he showed that there were uh, deep uh, paradoxes there where you actually get get stuck. It's a little bit like Arrow's impossibility theorem, and it has been formalized uh, by Gustav Arrhenius as an impossibility theorem uh, that. Each way you go, you know, you can kind of you can start to come up with some principles for determining these things, uh, but then you find that, uh, uh, however you do it, uh, you have to accept some kind of uh, problematic conclusion. Um, so this is a big challenge when it comes to to doing that. Uh, so when I was writing this book and trying to trying to really think about this, I didn't want to depend upon any one of these particular theories uh, about how to value the future. Uh, and so what I did was I I try to uh, explain a whole lot of different reasons why you might care about avoiding uh, one of these existential catastrophes uh, that that aren't just about increasing the amount of well-being in the future. So one aspect is uh, is about all the other things in the future. So suppose you think that well-being is just a is a fairly narrow way to conceive of things, just what happens in people's lives. You also think that say there are great achievements that matter. Um, or, you know, for example, uh, the greatest works of art that are ever created, um, or coming to finally know the true laws of the universe, or things like that. Uh, perhaps the most just societies that will ever be created. Uh, well, since the future is so much longer than the present, and I think can be so much longer than the past so far, we have reason to suspect that, that all of these greatest achievements are ahead of us. Uh, and if we lost the future, they would all be cut off as well. And then also, uh, as I hinted at before, looking at the past and this partnership of generations where we couldn't have this world uh, and all of these comforts, we couldn't live as long as we do and so on without 
uh, inheriting so much from our ancestors. Uh, so we could also kind of find these duties or a, or a version of understanding this rooted in our obligations to people in the past and so on. There are various other different ways of explaining it as well. And I think there's ultimately quite a robust case that, uh, kind of unsurprisingly, that the complete destruction of everything that we've ever built up, you know, that as I say, the, the final ruin of every cathedral and temple, uh, and, you know, the destruction of every culture and value that we've, we've had, that that would be really bad is, is in some sense very obvious and only a philosopher would actually doubt it. There are difficult and specific questions, but that doesn't mean the question of cutting off all of humanity's future is all that difficult um, when, when, when considered on its own. I think that that is right. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Support for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. At this point in my life, I've probably gone through maybe three sets of outdoor deck furniture, and it's a pain in the ass for a different reason every single time. It doesn't look like it did in the pictures, the assembly isn't what they said it was, or it's just not as advertised for whatever reason. Thankfully, Burrow is the furniture company that wants to make it all a little easier. Last year, Burrow introduced their outdoor line, and this spring they're adding to it with their Dunes line, offering new seating, dining, and lounger options designed for luxury, comfort, and durability. Burrow furniture is easy to put together and take apart, so you can move or store it as needed. And it ships straight to your door for free. Great area listeners can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash box. That's burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash box for 15% off. Burrow.com slash box. So let's go back to the risks because we stopped at your at your one in a thousand list. So why don't we get into some of the more probable sure. ones? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I should say, you know, regarding the climate change and nuclear war, uh, that one reason that my risk for nuclear war is uh, is lower than than one might think. Um, I mean, I, I think you're in, on exactly the right path of trying to predict the likelihood that we could get into another tense arms race by thinking about how long was it since the last one. I think that that's a, that's a good rule of thumb. Uh, but it, the uh, scientists who study nuclear winter, uh, none of the current scientists studying it uh, actually think that extinction is a very plausible possibility. Um, so that was something that surprised me uh, when I was researching this. And that's one of the reasons that the number isn't higher. Uh, when it comes to climate change, there is some debate about whether we should think of climate change as an existential risk at all. Um, it's it could be you know better construed as this you know fundamental catastrophe uh, uh, where the question is how large a catastrophe will it be, but that we're not really thinking about the destruction of all humans. But that's you know it's still it's still an absolutely terrible thing, and that that shouldn't be the the focus. I think that that's a reasonable view, uh, but we. I haven't yet really been able to rule out uh, whether or not uh, it could destroy humanity or our entire potential, maybe through a permanent collapse of civilization. 
I don't think that it really can. But the arguments just really are still, you know, still uncertain and unsettled. And it's worth saying, because you go into this in some more detail in the book, and it relates to things we've covered on the podcast, that one of the things you're looking at climate change is that uncertainty in Earth systems goes both ways. And there are a certain set of truly catastrophic feedback loops that could be set off that could do things we don't understand that would be completely existential. Um, they would could destroy the oxygen in the atmosphere. They could, I mean, all kinds of things could happen. We tend to, I think there tends to be uh, an effort in climate change to use uncertainty as a way to argue down how seriously people take it. And I, mm-hmm. I, I see what you're doing in this book actually is doing correctly the opposite, saying that when you're dealing with uncertainty of that magnitude, um, whatever you think your your baseline case is, the consequence of getting it wrong in the direction of it being more severe, of getting it wrong in the direction of methane feedback loops kicking off that you really can't stop, whether or not you end up believing that would lead to the extinction of everybody or just creating a level of mass suffering unlike anything in human history. Either way, it's pretty bad, and we should take that kind of uncertainty quite seriously. That's right. Um, and effectively, by by putting it at something like one in a thousand you know, I'm also saying that even though uh, on the most likely scenarios, we can't really see how the levels of warming that are predicted could actually cause the end of humanity, um, that we can't really be more than 99.9% sure of that in this fundamentally um, unprecedented situation. I-, I thought that we might be able to have arguments that could really rule it out, uh, looking at the uh, the paleoclimate record over millions and billions of years into the past. But it turns out that uh, that record is a bit shakier uh, than we'd like. Um, it has it does seem like it's been warmer in the past, but we're you know we're learning more about this all the time. Uh, and in terms of the rate of warming, it seems like that may actually be unprecedented in the Earth's history, and that the rate could actually be uh, as important as the level. Uh, so I don't think that we can rule out that it's an existential catastrophe. Uh, is is where I'm at on that, but it's it is not that likely. It's certainly not the default course. So why don't we then go into the next set? Yeah. So uh, the next one that I look at in terms of anthropogenic risks uh, is uh, pandemics, uh, and I I look a bit at, at uh, what you might think of as natural pandemics, uh, such as the uh, the coronavirus uh, that we're uh, we're suffering at the moment. In that case, you might think of it as a natural risk um, and think that my argument from before suggests safety, uh, that we've had I've had 10,000 generations of humanity, 2,000 centuries, uh, surviving these natural risks, so it can't be that likely. But the problem is that that argument only works if we know that the risk hasn't been increasing over that time. And when it comes to pandemics, there are several reasons to think that it might be increasing. Uh, in particular, the interconnectedness of humanity. Uh, both in terms of the rapid ability to spread across the world, but also in terms of the fact that it can spread across the world. Uh, For a long time, you know, we were separated up into different world zones. There were the Americas, which were just completely disconnected um, from Afro-Eurasia, which was disconnected from Australia. Uh, And so it wasn't possible for pandemics uh, to be crossing between these zones. Uh, But that's changed now as well. Uh, and we're also uh, perhaps through factory farming uh, and 
other forms of industry and agriculture that we're interacting with many more animals. And if there are a lot of zoonotic diseases, uh, this gives them more opportunities to arise. There are things going the other direction as well that would suggest safety, such as much better medical knowledge and um, and medical, you know, pharmaceuticals and uh, medical apparatus. Uh, but it's it, it's just that we can't quite run the argument anymore because it's no longer clear. There's kind of uncertainty, and uh, as you said before, it cuts both ways. Uh, I would rather that we could run the argument in this sense, and that things were the same. Uh, that would that would be more comforting. Uh, but the possibility that they could have got worse makes it harder. Uh, but either way, I still put this risk at a similar category to the natural risk at about one in ten thousand per century. So I think that it is very unlikely. I mean, the coronavirus is going to be extremely bad, but it is not the kind of thing that we're talking about here. It's not going to pose an existential catastrophe, and, and no one's really suggesting that it would. And the next thing like that is also almost certainly not going to pose such a catastrophe. But things get worse uh, if we think about engineered pandemics, and there's a few different ways that that could happen. Um, one of them is that scientists, you know, well-meaning scientists and, and doctors try to, um, in some cases, make diseases more uh, transmissible or more deadly uh, in the laboratory. This is called gain-of-function research. And they're trying to help uh, by, by testing how many mutations would be needed and what parts of the genome would need to mutate in order for the disease to get worse. So, for example, a scientist uh, did this with uh, uh, Fouchier, um, he did an experiment with bird flu to try to make it transmissible between mammals, and he succeeded. And so he made a mammal-to-mammal -mammal transmissible bird flu, uh, which would then be potentially one of the most deadly agents you know the world has ever seen. Uh, and he did this in a secure lab, uh, but it wasn't the top level of biosafety, um, surprisingly. You, you can, may wonder what the top level's for. Uh, the explanation I've seen for why it wasn't in the top level, uh, BSL-4, uh, was that bird flu is not mammal to mammal transmissible, um, and that the BSL four is for things that are? Yeah, so it's particularly weird. Um, I'd like to hope that there is some better reason going on there um, before before people quote me on that and uh, so on. Maybe there was some additional reason that actually makes more sense, uh, but it doesn't sound good to me because even the BSL four facilities have leaked um, uh, with uh, in the UK actually. Um, it wasn't that you could blame some, you know, or that I could sit here and blame some some distant country where their standards were more lax or something like that. Uh, we had a, a terrible outbreak here of foot and mouth um, uh, early in the the uh, millennium, uh, and then we had another outbreak, a smaller one, and that second one uh, came out of a lab, uh, came out of a leaky pipe, and it, the first infected animals were in the farm next door because for some reason this lab was located next to a farm that raised. You know the very animals that the agent would infect, uh, and uh, not only that, but uh, they uh, they even renewed the license of this lab, and two weeks later uh, it leaked out again. Um, so while you've got that level of problem, even in our top uh, labs, I mean, I should say this is the only example of a BSL four leak that I know of, uh, but it is fairly egregious. Uh, it seems like labs that are known to have leaked at that level. Uh, probably we shouldn't develop new super uh, super viruses that could threaten humanity in those labs. We kind of need to. I don't think we we have yet got labs secure enough to really do that kind of research. Uh, but it's not the the well-meaning scientists that worry me most. Uh, it's uh, bioweapons programs uh, where where uh, nation states are designing weapons of war 
that is especially concerning. Uh, and also cases where kind of small groups, like uh, there's this uh, Aum Shunrikyo uh, cult uh, that did these uh, the sarin uh, gas attacks in uh, in Tokyo. And they had a had an active plan to like one of the things they wanted to do was to try to b- bring about the end of humanity. And they had scientists involved uh, making these nerve agents. Uh, they tried to make anthrax as well, but didn't get it to work. But the problem there is that the difficulty of of making some kind of killer virus is getting easier and easier all the time. Uh, and the the example I use in the book is that uh, that if you take uh, something like the development of CRISPR. Um, which was this this fantastic breakthrough in uh, uh, in genetic engineering? Uh, it was only two years before that was replicated uh, by students for like university students for a science competition, and so the pool of people who can do one of these amazing breakthroughs over time, you know, one year it's no one, then it's one team, like the best team in the world, and then a couple of years later it's a whole lot of bright you know uh, college students. And then, you know, where is it in 10 years? Uh, and eventually, this pool gets larger enough uh, that it could include some people with with very bad motivations. And CRISPR is in some ways a good example because CRISPR, for, for those who don't know, is basically a virus that you can tell it what to look for and it can replace sections of DNA in um, cells. So it's an amazing delivery mechanism like that. And, and it could be, I think, one of the most profound, we will see, but one of the most profound uh, I- I- inventions in human history. There are now home CRISPR kits. Like you can go on Amazon or something and order a kit that will let you do some amount of this at home. Now, it's probably not powerful enough to create a pandemic superbug, but in 50 years, maybe it will be. And so it seems to me there's a real difference between the kind of risk that is accessible for a government, which at this point is something like nuclear weapons. I mean, maybe a very large terrorist organization could get its hands on like a dirty bomb or some loose fissile material, but not civilization ending nuclear uh, capabilities. But here you're dealing with something where it's plausible in 50 years that a Unabomber style misanthrope like Ted Kaczynski could instead of making bombs in his basement be making bioweapons and you just need one person who matches crazy and skilled as opposed to when you're dealing with these much more infrastructure intensive weapons like a a whole army of people yeah uh that's that's what worries me there um and this democratization of biotechnology which at one level is is amazingly good uh, uh, it's you know one of the big success stories of, of the whole field um, is that more and more people can you know have access to these these techniques and tools and and try to uh, try to use them for the betterment of the world, uh, but it it is this double edged sword, um, and so ultimately uh, over the next hundred years, uh, my estimate there is about a one in thirty chance uh, that uh, that. Uh, humanity ends its story uh, due to these engineered pandemics. And then we get to AI. Yeah. So uh, I think a lot of people already know what artificial intelligence is. Um, uh, We've been developing this uh, since the 1950s. There have been attempts to uh, uh, develop thinking machines. And uh, the initial goals of, of the AI scientists were very, very bold. You know, they wanted to create uh, machines that could think in the same ways that humans can. Uh, over the years, uh, 
you know, we found that we were better at doing a very narrow range of tasks with these machines. Each one was incredibly specialized to a particular thing. And we found that you could kind of replace in some ways uh, experts, you know, to do extremely difficult expert jobs, but you couldn't have the general intelligence of a two-year-old. Uh, the ability to kind of go out in the world and learn general things and, and be trained to do different tasks and switch from one task to another. Uh, we're still not very good at that, uh, but things have been getting a lot better at that recently. Uh, and there's renewed interest in this artificial general intelligence. And you've got systems uh, which, are, which are getting somewhere on that. Uh, like the, uh, uh, if you remember the AlphaGo system that DeepMind made, uh, it, uh, it learned uh, to play Go, uh, which, had, which had been a, a real challenge for, uh, for AI for a long time. Uh, it learned to play Go better than the best humans in the world, uh, substantially better. In fact, uh, so good that it, was, uh, it's, it is probably better than the best humans thought perfect play was. Uh, they thought that, that that was about two stones better than them. Uh, of handicap, but actually it looks like uh, AlphaGo uh, may be even better than that. Uh, and uh, but AlphaGo is a very specialized system. You know, it can play Go, uh, but you could you could beat it at knots and crosses. Um, you know, it, it hasn't been trained on that. Uh, but they they then developed uh, a system called AlphaZero, uh, which could take an arbitrary uh, board game uh, within certain constraints. And learn to play it, and that that system could p- play both Go and chess uh, better than the best humans. Uh, and it it is still not properly general. Um, effectively, what happens is that you train a specialist. It's kind of a general system for training specialist intelligence, uh, and it can get extremely good levels. Uh, but what what they're moving towards is training systems that are generally intelligent, and that the very same system. Uh, with its same kind of training parameters, can actually see what game is being played and you know, switch around between these things. Uh, so that's where things are headed, uh, back to these original lofty goals of artificial intelligence. And that's the kind of thing uh, where it starts to get uh, worrying. Well, tell me why, because so I've talked to Stuart Russell and read Human Compatible and, mm-hmm. and, and tried to follow the AI argument as best I can. And there are few arguments like it in the sense that it is an argument where if you believe what the people who believe it say is true, and these are in many cases very thoughtful, credentialed people, everything looks different, right? To just uh, speed up to the end here, you give AI a one in 10 chance of ending humanity the next century. So that is mm-hmm. a large amount of the entire existential risk we are facing mm-hmm. as a world. You're a smart guy. Like you did not start in this as a like a, somebody freaked out about AI. You've been working on global health issues. I know a lot of people who've gone into AI and have have ended up somewhere there. And they're people I respect a lot. They understand AI a lot better than I do. And at the same time, it is hard from the outside to both like look at what AI is able to do now, even things like Go, and understand why one would think it would destroy humanity. And I recognize we're not talking about evil AI here. We're usually talking about AI has misspecified objectives, like classic Nick Bostrom example being it's making a lot of paper clips and then it turns us all into paperclip raw materials. We seem quite far from that capability of general AI. It seems like quite a leap to me to say that even if you created something that smart, it would actually be that good at getting its objectives done. 
Um, I think people assume it would be, but analytical intelligence is not everything. Um, look at the world leaders. It's quite hard to get people to do what you want. And often very smart people are very bad at getting people to do what they want. They misread human beings quite quite, quite severely. So make the case to me as uh, as somebody who takes it seriously, but is a bit of a skeptic. Yeah, okay. So there's there's a couple of things there. What I'm concerned about isn't just the kind of analytic intelligence then. It's about mental abilities overall. So uh, a very broad sense of intelligence. Uh, and uh, often people in AI call these cognitive abilities. Um, so it's it's it even includes things like using your body appropriately. So dancers display, you know, the reason they can dance is in part due to physical abilities, but in part due to mental abilities of coordination of their limbs and so forth. Uh, now, humanity got to the position it's in uh, today uh, through these cognitive abilities. It wasn't our, uh, you know, our strength or our speed or our claws or something like that. Uh, that that is why uh, this, you know, this species of apes. Uh, from Africa managed to end up in a situation where, for better or worse, it holds the future of other species uh, at its mercy. Uh, you know, we, we got here, uh, yeah, through our mental abilities, uh, particularly our abilities to learn um, and to learn in a collaborative way. Uh, so to have uh, not just a you know one human, uh, but not just even you know a band of fifty humans, but countries of millions of humans. Uh, entire civilizations, and in particular, intergenerational cooperation, you know, getting to this point where effectively 100 billion humans work together to build this world. Now, we, we did that uh, through these mental abilities. Um, and now we're in this position where we might be able to fulfill our potential. But all the other species, whether or not they fulfill their potential, you know, whether chimpanzees do or, or blackbirds is, you know, is within our control. We, you know, they, they are. We have power over them. But what we're trying to do now is effectively to build artificial intelligence systems which would dethrone us in this particular way, that would be better than humans at almost all cognitive tasks. Uh, so a recent survey on this uh, you know, asked uh, the leading people in artificial intelligence when they thought we'd be able to build artificial intelligence systems that were better than humans at uh, all jobs, I think was the question. Although even if you have a slightly smaller version, you just imagine the uh, cognitive work behind these jobs rather than the physical manipulations and so on. Uh, and the the estimates were kind of in some level all over the place. Um, some people said, you know, hundreds of years or thousands of years or never. Some people said, you know, 20 years. Uh, but the the typical number for for this as to when by uh, by which year would we have a 50% chance of this was within a century from now um in fact less than 50 years from now uh and so if you ask you might think that these people are biased uh and that you know they're interested in ai and they want to boost it or something but if you ask the general public they actually give similar numbers as well um so that's not a, a particularly good reason uh and it's uh, my views would be pretty similar too um, from having looked into it in detail before I knew about the survey, in fact, before the survey was conducted. Uh, so I think that if you want to say that the chance of that happening in the next 100 years is substantially different to about 50%, the onus is kind of on you to explain why it is that that, uh, that you'd think that. It is actually kind of mainstream position among the experts. But if we did create such a system um, and kind of you know dethroned humanity in respect to this particular property, like which is a reason that we got to where we are, 
you know, why would we continue to call the shots and uh, and have the ability to choose the future, uh, this future trajectory uh, that you know of our choice instead of it being then one of uh, you know within the power of these AI systems? And there are some reasons to think that we might be able to control it. Um, uh, a couple of approaches to this uh, include trying to create AI systems that. Uh, obey our commands, and that we, even though they're more powerful than us, we ultimately set them going in certain directions. Or to create AI systems that are aligned with us um, in the sense that uh, we've had them learn our values, and then they go about the world trying to fulfill our values in some sense, um, uh, so that in building their ideal world, they build ours. So if either of those plans worked, uh, you know, then we could probably get through this time. Uh, but we're finding those those things very difficult, and the experts who are working on them are, you know, like Stuart Russell, are among the leading voices uh, saying this is a real problem. Uh, people people should be worried about this. Uh, and so, roughly speaking, you could kind of like decompose my one in ten number as saying there's a fifty percent chance that we'll end up with artificial intelligent general intelligences uh, over the next century, and then something like only a, a four in five chance that we will survive that transition. So that we'll probably survive that transition through our hard work in trying to align these systems or to work out how to control them. But I think it's hard to kind of make say that the chance that we, you know, to say is more than 80% chance, say it's like 99% chance we'll get through that. Let me ask you something about that. So let's say I buy those nested probabilities. We're looking mm -hmm. at a technology that we have a one in two chance of inventing but over long periods of time, much higher mm -hmm. than that. But let's say one in two for now. If we invent it, there is a one in five chance it wipes out human civilization, or at least human autonomy over where human civilization goes. And not only a one in five chance of that, but you can imagine other quite bad outcomes as well. Like it leads to a mass purposelessness among people, right? There are a lot of people who don't believe AI will kill all human beings, but it will lead to mass unemployment because of automation on a scale that the human psyche will have a lot of trouble recovering from. It will lead to inequality in an unbelievable way. Perhaps a government that we do not want to have control of the world wins the AI race. And so it is, say, China in an even more authoritarian guise that now has an AI that makes it fundamentally invincible. If you just described a technology like that to me, 50% chance of creation and then one in five chance of total human destruction and then two or three and five chance of just a really bad outcome of some sort, I would say, maybe let's not make that technology. <laughs> like, maybe that's just not a good bet to take as a species. Like, why why give that a shot? Um, isn't the implication of your probabilistic reasoning there that maybe we just want to pump the brakes on this pretty hard? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, and I've got, a, I've got a somewhat somewhat complicated answer because <laughs> um, I, I think it's, it's tricky. Uh, uh, so I certainly don't wholly disagree with you on that. Um, I think that uh, ultimately, you know, I said before that the problems that we're facing stem from this kind of acceleration, you know, this exponential increase in humanity's power over time, finally reaching this point where we're so powerful that we can kind of keep coming up with technologies which could actually threaten our continued existence across the entire globe. Um, but in particular, it's not just because we're powerful. Uh, but because we're powerful without being commensurately wise. Now, there's kind of two different directions you could go on this. One is to say, let's put the brakes a bit on becoming more powerful. Uh, another is to say, let's accelerate our wisdom. You could also try both.
I think that at the moment, in general, with the uh, if humanity was completely coordinated on these questions, um, and and suppose we weren't perfectly intelligent, but we at least had the ability to kind of all work together in concert, and we found that kind of cooperation quite easy. Uh, then I think probably what we should do is go slow on technologies that are seriously thought to pose existential risks by some of the people, you know, some of the leading lights in that that very field. Um, that seems to be a reasonable criterion for saying. Let's go slow on that. I think that if humanity was coordinated like that and it had the patience to say uh, that because we may live for millions of years more, you know, if we get this technology 50 years later, uh, that's not that big a deal in the scheme of things. I think if we had that patience and that coordination, uh, we could get through a lot of these problems and the, the risk would be a lot lower than one in six. Uh, but unfortunately, with humanity being kind of more fragmented and in, you know, intention with each other in, in certain kind of technology races and things. I think that it's very hard to go slow. It's it's hard to unilaterally go slow, even if you could somehow make your entire country just go very slow on this. Um, it's not clear that that would help if the most conscientious countries uh, have kind of dropped out of the race. Uh, so what I would generally recommend is that since only a very few people are actually caring about these issues and taking them very seriously, that it would be a real waste if those people kind of really alienated everyone in the research community by trying to kind of shut it down or have it go slow uh, instead of doing something that's got a much higher chance of actually making a difference in this. Uh, and so I would instead recommend that they they try to accelerate the protective technologies or the, or the conversations about governance of these technologies. Support for the gray area comes from Greenlight. If you're a parent of teenagers, you might be starting conversations about money management and financial literacy. So often, the best way to learn is to do. But when it comes to money, there can be real consequences to learning the hard way. That's where Greenlight comes in. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on their spending and saving. And kids and teens can build money confidence and lifelong financial skills. My kid is way too young to talk money with, thank God, but I have a colleague here at Vox that uses Greenlight with his boys, and he loves it. If you want to help your kids learn about money, consider Greenlight. It's a convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and for families to navigate this stuff together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash gray area. That's greenlight.com slash gray area to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash gray area. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. But that's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. We've now gone through the major technologies you're worried about. And, and something I want to say as we move forward in this conversation is one could put the exact risk calculation in quite a few different places, depending on their assumptions. I mean, it is entirely plausible that it's really a one in 12 risk or a one in 15 or a one in three or a one in a hundred. Or, I mean, you people mm -hmm. have heard this conversation already that you can begin building in your own assumptions. Like maybe you don't think AI will happen at all. And then your risk calculation becomes very different, but it's still a risk. 
One of the things you talk about in the book that feels very important to me is this idea of risks being correlated with each other, even when they're in very separate fields. Mm-hmm. That the same kind of event or leadership or context might simultaneously increase a risk of catastrophic nuclear war, catastrophic climate change, and a bioengineered pandemic, for instance. Can you talk a little bit about that issue of risk correlation? Yeah. So th- there's there's a couple of things going on there. I think probably the main one that you're getting at is to do with these risk factors. Often when people are thinking about existential risk, uh, they think about particular risks that could destroy us. Uh, so they think, well, there's asteroids, there's uh, nuclear war, uh, there's uh, pandemics. And they, they kind of silo the risk. The idea is that it's into these kind of like non-overlapping buckets where each particular uh, threat um, poses a certain amount of this risk. And you can kind of add it up across all of these buckets. And to think of other people as working on the same problem as them if they're working on one of those buckets. But I think that this, this misses something important uh, because you can also think of certain kind of cross-cutting things uh, that I call existential risk factors uh, that increase uh, perhaps a range of risks, even though they're not in themselves risks. So for example, uh, if you take war um, or even take international tensions, international tensions, no one can say that's an existential risk or you know, there's an existential catastrophe of being too tense or something, but it is something that could increase risk. Uh, and so like one example I look at a bit in the book is great power war. The way you can think about it is this. If you think about what is the the existential risk over the next century, the chance that we we don't make it through, and then think, how much lower would that be if we could guarantee that there was no great power war? Um, so no war between, say, uh, China and America or similarly powerful entities. Uh, it seems to me that the the risk would go down by you know something like a tenth. Uh, if I could imagine, you know, I could I could instead get a century that was guaranteed to have no great power war instead of the current levels of, of risk of this. Particularly when I think of the last century and I think of the fact that nuclear weapons themselves were invented in a great power war uh, and that uh, then, you know, the big threat of using them in, in mass deployment uh, was in a cold great power war. Um, it seems that this is a, a big exacerbator. And if I try to imagine things like managing this transition to advanced artificial intelligence during a time of great power war, it seems like so much harder to get the kind of international cooperation and things that you would need and to get people to take it slow and carefully. So I think that 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 there are potentially a lot of these existential risk factors um, and uh, that in some ways, you know, I said I said something like a tenth of the risk. So if you, if you take my numbers, and and you don't need to, but but for for illustration, you know, one in six chance, a tenth of that is one in sixty, um, so about two percent. So my suggestion is that great power war is kind of as bad, or the threat of it that we have is about as bad as a two percent existential risk, which would put it very high up in my list, you know. Um, it would put it certainly well above all natural existential risks. And I think that people who are concerned about existential risk should make make sure not just to devote their attention to these buckets and say that someone working you know, on asteroid defense is, is on their team working on existential risk, whereas someone who's uh, working on world peace is doing something totally different. Let me ask you a question that's been on my mind since reading your book and because of what I do. Is Donald Trump as president, an existential risk factor? Uh, 
so, uh, you know, so to paraphrase that, uh, it is, uh, did the election of Donald Trump increase existential risk? Um, or even uh, more to the point, would his re-election? Would his re-election? Uh, seems likely to me that the world with uh, with this re-election has higher risk. Yeah. Because I've been even just watching over the past couple of weeks, and I did an episode recently with Evan Osnos about US-China risk. And something I am noticing and thinking a lot about is that Trump himself does not have, I would call, a risk management approach to his office. He got briefings about coronavirus pandemic threat. He didn't do much about them. He had a very erratic response after them. But then as things got worse, he's been increasing tensions with China as a response to shore up his domestic political standing. This is not to say China has been in any way perfect on this crisis or bears no blame because they have not been perfect and they do bear some blame. But there's no. it is a choice to decide to ratchet up the level of conflict with them in a way that you know takes a risk that I think is quite unlikely, some sort of armed confrontation with China in the next, let's call it 10 years. Maybe you put that at one in 50. Maybe you put it at one in 25. Taking that then down to one in 20 or one in 15 probably still won't happen, but it would be very bad if it did. And so Trump is a sort of correlating factor between pandemic risk and US-China great power war risk, mm-hmm. um, which is also increasing climate risk because if there's going to be any answer on climate, one, he already is a, in a opposition to that, but two, US-China cooperation being in a good place from the beginning would be important. Let's say somebody else comes into office in 2021. If the US-China relationship is in shambles, then even if they want to do more on climate than Donald Trump does, it's going to be much harder for them to do. This is a way I think that we have trouble thinking about the presidency. We tend to, in politics, I think this is true in the UK too, we judge people on what did or didn't happen. We have a lot more trouble assessing or even thinking about the ways in which a leader has taken the risk of 10 very bad things from 1 in 20 to 1 in 10. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're very bad at doing that even when it's not a leader. Um, and even, even when you remove all of the challenges we have in neutrally assessing um, a very polarizing political leader. Uh, it's still very difficult to to do that. There are attempts at, at doing it. You know, if you if you try to say how do you do that right, uh, there are these um, so called proper scoring rules, and people like Philip Tetlock, you know, will will talk about this and and how how you can design systems uh, that appropriately measure you know whether someone was making uh, good estimates uh, even when the chances are very low. But it's when it's contentious as to how high these risks even were and you know people don't even agree on necessarily on whether this person even raised the risks and then the event doesn't happen it's uh yeah it's, it's very hard to have a kind of objectively shareable kind of you know agreed uh measure of anything there uh to point it out uh, i think this is a real problem uh there's actually something like this happens with um uh stephen pinker's book uh the um i'm thinking of uh, uh the better angels of our nature uh, it, I think it does a good job of showing a certain kind of decline of violence over many centuries. It has its most trouble when it comes to state-level uh, violence, including uh, uh, internal violence, uh, and also uh, when we're thinking about in the, in the uh, 20th century and 21st century, the, the possible risk of nuclear war or something like that. And you can get these kinds of troubles where if you have a trend and you know that if nuclear war had broken out, like so, if there had have been a nuclear war uh, in, uh, say, 1962 in the Cuban Missile Crisis, it would completely destroy the trend. 
it would, you know, the the violent deaths would go completely through the roof, and uh, it would be far and above the most violent century ever. Uh, and you know, then you say, well, how low would the chance have had to have been in order for that analysis to be correct? And then it's it's somewhat hard to you know to be confident that the chance was really as low as that. I don't know exactly how low it would have to be, but it's the kind of challenges that come up when you're trying to assess these things. And it is very easy for people to uh, to make these kinds of things where they, they there's a kind of externality, like they, they they kind of push. Like if you think about the the you know a lump under the carpet or something, they kind of push it you know in this kind of risk location that probably won't happen, and they probably won't get penalized for it. Uh, there's actually a similar uh, mathematical thing uh, that went on to do with the 2008 financial crisis, uh, where traders were incentivized uh, to make a certain kind of bet uh, where if it went wrong, it went really wrong. Um, it's called a negatively skewed bet. You know, Think of it like you go to a roulette table and you bet on all numbers except one. Uh, you're probably going to win and win a very small amount of money. Uh, but if it comes up to the number that you didn't bet on, uh, you lose big. And with that kind of system, you know, it turns out, you know, what like uh, depending on the the uh, the house advantage in your roulette table, most of the time you you make about three percent, but then occasionally you lose everything, and so there's often these temptations to just take these kind of negatively skewed bets, particularly if it's not you who does all the losing. If you kind of like get a very tidy profit most years, and occasionally your fund goes bankrupt, and you just have to change jobs. Uh, then you know this is a kind of perverse incentive you can get, and I think it holds in politics as well. There's an interesting distinction buried in there, I think, between different ways of thinking about deferred risk. So there are certain kinds of let's call it for here just catastrophic risk, right? Not quite existential, mm-hmm. where I might just have an argument with somebody about what raises or lowers it, right? So there are people who believe a more confrontational approach to the U.S.-China relationship actually lowers the risk of great war because China will be afraid of testing our boundaries because they'll know that we're like real crazy man and like might do anything at any moment. And so it is a more accommodationist stance that actually creates a a higher risk of great war. And in a world where great war doesn't happen, um, it's very hard to tell who is right. And then there are risks where you are what you are doing is not disagreeing over what would lower them. You are simply throwing them into the future. So I think, for instance, climate change, which at this point, relatively few even Republican office holders will outrightly say is a hoax, although not zero. And who knows what Donald Trump would say if you really got him to, to, to answer that question for a minute now. But climate change is clearly to me a risk where the disagreement is not so much as to whether or not it exists, but whether or not we should do anything about it now versus simply leaving it for the future. And those feel to me like very different modes on which to evaluate politicians. Like if you have a coherent argument for why you are doing risk management, well, then we're just arguing, right? Then we just have different views based on first principles or reads of the evidence versus if you are simply taking something we all agree is a risk and simply not doing anything about it, right? Nobody thought there was no risk of a pandemic respiratory flu five years ago. In 2014, the U.S. established as part of the National Security Council a pandemic and biothreat preparedness seat. And so added to the U.S. NSC was -hmm. like a literal space in which we should be thinking all the time about the risk of something exactly like this. 
And then the Trump administration dissolved that group in, I think it was 2017 or 2019. I forget which one. And so like that was a distinction where even they, John Bolton, who got rid of that, I don't think he would have said there was no risk of pandemics or bioweapons. He just something, didn't think it should be in the NSC, didn't think it should have as much prominence as it did, thought it would work better somewhere else. And so there's like a real, I mean, you talk about this in the book a bit, but there's a real tendency to take risks that we all know are there and simply choose not to focus them because we want to spend the money on something that feels more pressing in the moment or because the mind repels from something that big, or we don't think it should be all on our own country to deal with that. Yeah. I mean, they're all major reasons for this. Uh, uh, ultimately, you know, the, the incentives uh, kind of push in this direction. Although, if you think about it, uh, because the, because of this idea that you're probably, you know, very unlikely to get punished for doing this um, if you just remove some things from some kind of risk that has a low chance of happening in your term of office. But if it does happen, you, it could be pretty bad. Um, and so people, you know, if they really do make these these bad uh, choices on these risks, uh, they do need to, there do need to be consequences for that. Uh, because otherwise there's just, you know, the incentives are completely broken um, and, you know, people can just completely remove all of these uh, prudent uh, plans. I agree with that. But then how do you operationalize that? We've just discussed for a little bit the difficulty of applying a risk management or a probabilistic form of judgment to political leaders. So what, what, do, what do you suggest? I mean, how should voters think about this? How should we think about this? How would you how would you judge political leaders based on what they've done to the risks country faces as opposed to simply what their term in office did? Because if you don't figure out some way of doing that, in some ways, there's actually an incentive to kick the can down the road on risks, to juice short-term growth, or just try to deliver things instantly, hoping that it'll be the future that has to deal with the consequences of your decisions. Yeah, uh, it's it's certainly challenging, uh, particularly as you say, because there could be multiple reasons why the particular thing happened. Uh, so I don't know uh, the particular reasons why this uh, this group got uh, dismantled or or got removed from the location it was in. If we had more knowledge about that, if we if it was clear that it was one of these cases of just pull the money from that and use it for something that the voters want more now, uh, then that would be a, a fairly clear case, and I imagine people wouldn't have much trouble. Uh, you know, making ads about that and explaining it to to voters. Uh, but if if there could be good reasons, uh, one actually does want to look into those. Uh, for example, if it did turn out that they could they could do a better job if they were located elsewhere, uh, then it would be you know really problematic to to just punish people for for actually making a good move by dismantling a thing and and you know doing it elsewhere. So one would really want to get that right. Uh, but I think that that maybe that's a case for you know investigative journalism, uh, followed by. Uh, you know, good explanation of it uh, to people. I think that I think that is certainly right. Um, let me see one other question. I said earlier we were going to get back to the que- the issue of probabilistic reasoning. One of the things in the effective altruism movement in general, and not only there, but among just like a lot of smart people, I've noticed a move towards saying, well, when you're talking, let's attach probabilities to things that are based on informed guesses. Let's say that there's a one in six chance of humanity destroying itself. Let's start a post or an essay by saying, I have a 55% ontological certainty about what is going on here. In the White House under Obama, Larry Summers famously would tell people when they said something, well, what is your confidence level on that? Is it 33%? Is it 55%? Is it 75%? And there's a funny way, having come across a lot of this kind of thinking, in which I think it has the exact opposite effect at 
that it is at least conceptually intended to have, that instead of focusing people on uncertainty, it creates a kind of unearned authority for what is being said. Mm-hmm. That people will take you more seriously, actually, if you say that what that this set of risks, it's one in six, not just significant or it might happen, but it's one in six. Um, whereas it's the same kind of guesswork that would have been there under, you know, it's a significant risk, we should take it seriously. But that adding numbers to things just makes people take them more seriously. It's like an, it's an aesthetic of authority in a way that um, sometimes makes it harder for people to think probabilistically because fundamentally what people end up doing is deciding, do I trust the source or do I not? I'm just curious how, how you reflect on that. Yeah, I think that is a challenge. Uh, it, it's something where uh, scientists are often quite annoyed uh, by probabilities that come out of this process, um, uh, people's subjective probabilities. There's sometimes a feeling that numbers, particularly percentages, kind of shouldn't appear unless they've come out of some valid statistical process. In in the case of existential risk, uh, that ultimately means we need to set government policy about these things in a number-free zone, if that was the idea. Uh, Because in a lot of cases, we're talking about things that are uh, fundamentally unprecedented. Even for something as well understood as these asteroid orbits, we still don't know what the chance that we'd survive a one-kilometer asteroid hitting the Earth is. Um, and there's a whole lot of, you know, that's uh, un- massive uncertainty on that particular part of the, the calculation, even if the trajectories are well understood. So uh, ultimately, uh, when we've got situations where we can afford to have something happen a thousand times and then uh, see, see what happens, uh, we can, you know, we can afford to do it this, uh, this typical way where we get these objective frequencies out. Uh, but if something, if we need to make decisions, uh, either in our own lives uh, about something unprecedented that might happen to us, or in this case about the whole of humanity, where it's you know it's necessarily unprecedented, such as you know what's the chance that uh, uh, maybe say the you know the the chance here that humanity would go extinct over the next century, uh, you know we need to be able to set sensible policy and so on, and you know we need numbers for them, I think. Uh, but when it comes to the particular aspect of these conversations uh, that you that you're imagining, uh, I've been in conversations like that too, and uh, it indeed can be annoying. Uh, there's there's a classic, uh, you know, type of trope you get from TV where you know Doctor Spock or C-3PO, you know, says that there's a uh, you know the chances of getting out of that asteroid field, you know, alive, or you know, then then gives this kind of really precise sounding number. Uh, you know that that's a problem. Uh, that that's ridiculous. Uh, if if people are giving these kinds of uh, credences, they should probably just be order of magnitude estimates, or at best one significant figure. You know, uh, and that's that's what what I'm doing. Uh, in you know, when I try to give these estimates, uh, they they're all basically order of magnitude estimates, such that if someone said, "Oh, I think it's about a third of that," I would say, "Oh, so you agree? You know, we're basically in the same same zone." And I think that's that's kind of where you want to be. Uh, but I agree that that there is this, there is still some some risk of this. Uh, partly just because we're so used to treating numbers in this way that they must have come from some kind of uh, statistical process. Uh, I sometimes call these numbers you can stand by, uh, and science loves numbers you can stand by, even when they're not the best guess of the scientist. Uh, a good topical example is the numbers of uh, uh, cases of uh, coronavirus. Uh, we know that there are far more cases than there are cases that have been shown to exist because a lot of people haven't managed to get tests. 
And uh, it's it's often thought that the number you know might be twice as high or five times as high, depending on which week we're we're in and uh, which country we're in. Uh, but people very rarely use the numbers that are much closer to the truth. You know that they use these numbers you can stand by, which is the the number of tests that have been done uh, that have turned out positive, even if they're pretty sure it's like a factor of five off, and they could just multiply by five and use that number instead. Uh, so. I I think that often we we want to get beyond the kind of like just always relying on numbers you can stand by and sometimes kind of go out on a limb a little bit more and actually express something closer to our best guess. Uh, but we don't want to be annoying about it. We want to we want to make sure it's clear to everyone else that these are very rough and ready. And I mainly use them to try to find disagreement. So if someone says, "Oh, I think the risk of nuclear war, the the chance that it destroys us all, is one in ten. Uh, then I think, you know, oh, now we're talking. That's actually a real disagreement. Let's try to find out what's going on. Um, whereas if I had instead said, I think it is small but substantial. Uh, and someone else, you know, maybe the, you know, someone who thought it was like 5% might think that that was also small but substantial or something. And But actually, we're off by a factor of 50, and it would be useful to find out what the disagreement is. Uh, so I find that uh, just doing it all in words, like the IPCC does, I think is. Uh, can actually be quite a lot worse. So I thought I really owed it to uh, to the reader to try to just tell them like these summaries of my best understanding of each risk, uh, and to try to disclaim it that it's uh, you know I'm not trying to lay down the law here. I'm just trying to like provoke kind of this is where I'm coming from, uh, so you 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 can understand it and see whether you actually disagree or not. I think it's a good place to end. So let me ask you what is always our final question, which is what are three books you've read that have influenced you and you would recommend to the audience? So let's see. Uh, one book that, that influenced me a lot, uh, but is pretty heavy heavy going for the audience, but uh, you know, uh, is uh, Reasons and Persons. I, I mentioned this. This is uh, Derek Parfitt's magnum opus uh, written in 1984. Uh, it's often considered one of the, the most important uh, works of philosophy of the 20th century. And in it, he considers a lot of stuff uh, about ethics and personal identity. Uh, the, I would say the two things it's most famous for are his ideas about personal identity, where he gets to to uh, to think about you know what is it that makes you now the same person as you in fifty years' time, even if you've changed in many deep ways. Uh, you know, you're at that point. You know, you're now a fierce conservative, uh, and uh, you reject all of your earlier, you know, beliefs. Um, you know, what is it that makes you the same? Uh, and he really tries to to tackle with that, and and had a huge amount of influence on that conversation. And the other thing that's uh, that's really big about it is uh, this population ethics idea. Uh, how do you actually think about comparing things with, say? More people. Is there some obligation to have more children or fewer children? You know, how does that work? Uh, and then also, uh, he has this this famous bit, kind of very short bit, but he gave it pride of place about existential risk. One of the earliest statements of this and clearest statements. Then a second book uh, that I'd recommend uh, is uh, "Doing Good Better" uh, by Will McCaskill. Uh, this is, uh, you know, the book on effective altruism. Uh, and uh, I had, uh, you know, the the nice experience of uh, uh, coming up with a lot of these ideas with Will at the time, uh, and uh, so I might have thought that that uh, and he'd told me everything he was working on, but it, somehow even then uh, I I learned a lot by reading this. Uh, one of the ideas that that uh, that I learned from it uh, that 
uh, somehow Will had been keeping secret, uh, was uh, this idea of what he calls the hundredfold multiplier, which I thought was a really nice way of thinking about things, where people in, uh, say, Britain or America are on average about a hundred times richer uh, than people who are at the extreme poverty line in, in poor countries. And that means that often our money, if we use it to help them instead, can go about a hundred times further. And it's a good rule of thumb. Uh, in some cases, it can go even further than that because we get extra leverage on it by the way we donate it. Uh, but I think a really nice idea. Uh, so doing good better. And then uh, I guess a third one. Uh, I'm going to say uh, Maps of Time uh, by David Christian. Uh, this is the foundational book on a field called Big History. And he was he was trying to uh, ask these questions of the the entirety of history. Uh, so generally, history is studied at about the biographical timescale, so about a human life, that kind of length of time. And he wanted to understand, you know, first world history, and then go go even bigger, um, and to understand history over the whole of time of humanity, or even over, you know, what about other species, the entire fossil record, uh, you know, what about all time since the Big Bang. And so it's this kind of audacious book that attempts to explain the fundamental changes over that entire period of time. It does it very carefully. Um, it's, uh, I, I'm sure that there's a lot uh, that we've still got to learn about this, but it's kind of a first real attempt to kind of put it all together, understand the trends that operate in these different timescales. Uh, one of the key ideas that he puts forward is this: uh, that the rates of energy dissipation per kilogram of matter is actually uh, higher in uh, for, in life than it is in a star, uh, and is higher again uh, in the human brain than it is in you know almost any other uh, organic matter. Uh, so he has kind of like fascinating kind of physical principles that kind of run through this, but also obviously a lot of other ideas. Uh, it's got you know fantastic information about the industrial revolution, the agricultural revolution, and so on, and really trying to understand how it all fits together. Uh, it's kind of audacious, and I'm sure uh, it's the kind of thing that, that will get improved upon over time, but it's, I think, the first great attempt at that, and I really enjoyed it. Toby Ord, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you to Toby Ord for being here. Thank you to Roche Karma for researching, to Jeffrey Geld for producing and editing, to all of you for listening. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media podcast production. This episode is brought to you by Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change, Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and everyday people about why we do the things we do. Listen to Choiceology at schwab.com slash podcast or wherever you listen. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.